One of the primary objections to Christianity today is the idea that Jesus is the only way for salvation. It's kind of an an unwritten rule in our society today that you just don't tell other people that their religion is wrong. If you're to believe that Jesus is the only way to have peace with God, that it's only through believing, through saving faith in Jesus Christ that you can spend eternity with God, well, to those that aren't Christians, they look at those of us who are, and they say, well, that just seems unfair. That seems quite arrogant that you would have that opinion about what you believe. Take, for example, when's the last time you heard a politician who was a Bible-believing, solid evangelical Christian who said that they believe that it's only through faith alone in Jesus that you can spend eternity with God, that they're not belittled for saying, I can't believe that you would put down everyone else. Today, it's just assumed that if you want to be called a a considerate, if you want to be called a, a politically correct or an educated person, then by all means, do not belittle someone else's religious beliefs. Do not belittle or imply that what you believe is is right and what someone else believes is wrong. The rule in our society today is it's okay for you to be sincere about your faith. In fact, it's considered that's a good thing, that you truly believe this is your belief system. This is what your religion teaches you. You can believe that with all of your heart. Just don't get so excited that you try to convert other people to believe what you do. When you get to that point, you've just taken it too far. This morning, in our brief time together, it's my hope that as we look at Acts chapter 4, that we will be able to address how did the very first Christians deal with this primary objection to the fact that how can you say that only by believing in Jesus that someone can spend eternity with God? If you have your Bibles, open them with me to Acts chapter 4. If you don't, there's a pew Bible in front of you. It's on page 911 is where we will be this morning. Um, We're going to look at Acts chapter 4. We're going to be in in verses 1 all the way through um, verses 21. Let's just start with the first verse. Acts chapter 4, it says, And as they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees, they came upon them. Now, this is the same high council that had just met a few months ago that had condemned Jesus to die. Now, let's make sure that we're reading Acts chapter 4 in context, that Acts chapter 4 goes immediately after Acts chapter 3. I know that sounds like a dumb statement, but what we're saying here is they happened right next to each other, all right? So in Acts chapter 3, which we studied the last two weeks, we had a man who was lame from birth, who was 40 years old. He was crippled. He couldn't walk. Remember, and his friends, they carried him to what was called the beautiful gate, which was as close to the temple as you could get. And, and, And he comes upon, he's begging for money. He's there for years. We don't know how long. We have to assume probably decades that he had been sitting at this gate and he's asking for money and men would come and women give their charity as they're on their way to the hour of prayer. Peter and John are on their way and he asks for money and Peter and John say, we don't have money, but what we have, we give to you in the name of Jesus, the Christ. We want you to rise up and walk. And he doesn't begin just to stumble up, but scripture says immediately he stands up, he jumps, he leaps and he runs into the temple praising God. So what we see here is right after this miracle, we have this high council that we're reading about in Acts chapter 4. They're explaining, Peter and John, the purpose of this miracle. 
And I said, hey guys, listen, the purpose of this miracle, the reason that Jesus chose that God gave us the power through the name of Jesus to heal this man was to give you a picture of salvation. Verse 2, it says, And greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Now the Sadducees, they were the ruling authority in the government at this time. And the Sadducees, they had two main problems. The first problem they had was they didn't like Jesus. They were annoyed by Jesus because he was a threat to their power. The second problem that the Sadducees had was that um, they, they did not believe in their bodily resurrection from the dead. They didn't think that once you died, that was it. There was no resurrection. So they didn't believe in the Messiah. They didn't have any hope. That's why they were sad, you see. Come on now. That was funny. All right. We'll keep going on. Verse 3. And they arrested them, and they put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. Verse 4. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. Now notice it says 5,000, but that's just what? That's just men. They were the, the head of the household. So we have 5,000 here. Now we also had in Acts chapter 2, at the end of Acts chapter 2, we had 3,000. So we now have 8,000 men, but I have to assume if you include women and you include children, we're talking anywhere from 12, 14, 16, 20,000 people that are now believing in the name of Jesus, believing that Jesus truly is the Messiah. Verses 5 through 7. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Now remember, we're just 100 days, less than 100 days from when Peter denied Jesus how many times? Three times. And a hundred, less than a hundred days later, let's listen to how Peter is going to respond. Beginning in verse eight. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth whom you crucified whom God raised from the dead by him this man is standing before you well in other words he says hey guys listen if we are being put on trial for how this man who was lame that all these people have seen how he's been made well let me make sure that you have no question about it, it wasn't by our name it wasn't by our abilities it was by the name of Jesus that this man who was lame has been made well and i have to think that when they say that phrase by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth it must have sent chills down their spines why just a few months ago they thought they had dealt with Jesus. They thought they had wiped their hand clean. Now we're done with Jesus. But now they're saying that Jesus, not only he's alive, but now his followers are proclaiming in the name of Jesus and people are believing that he truly is the Messiah. Verse 11. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. 
Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that these men had been with Jesus. These weren't polished men. They didn't have multiple degrees. What were they? They were just just fishermen, common, uneducated men, just regular men, but they were speaking with something that went so far beyond their education. They're speaking with this boldness. Verse 14, but seeing that the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. So I want you to picture this scene. So you've got some of the most uh, powerful people in all the land and they're conferring and they're having this meeting and they're saying, now what can we do about this? We're trying to take care of Peter and John. We're trying to stamp out the name of Jesus. We don't want what was called the way back then, the, the, the Christianity. We're trying to prevent that from spreading. And so they come up with this and they say, we just want them to go away. We just want Peter, just, just be gone. But there's a problem. What's the problem? Verse 14. There's this man And there's this man that's standing beside them, this man that probably thousands of people had seen for years and years who had been crippled, who couldn't walk since birth, and now he's healed. And I have to believe this man's not just sitting here quiet. I have to believe this man who's been healed, I have to believe he's probably grinning, maybe laughing. It says if he jumped and leaped and ran into the temple, I have to believe he's like, look at me, I'm healed. And they think, well, there's nothing we can say. These men that have probably never been at a loss for words, verse 14 says they have nothing to say. Verse 15, but when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another saying, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through him is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Now notice what this council isn't seeking. They're not really seeking the truth, are they? They are seeking every which way they can to do what? To avoid the truth. How can we concoct a lie? How can we just wipe our hand clean? How can we make sure, let's just quietly get rid of them? And I have to wonder, we don't have an answer to this, but I have to wonder what would have happened if they went into that scene with clear intentions and with, with pure hearts and they examined the evidence? What would have happened if they said, well, okay, well, let's see, there was this lame man, he, he's been healed, that, that they've got so much faith, they know that they may lose their life for Jesus, but they're still one. Might they have been saved on that day? But instead, it was their pride. It was their hard hearts that prevented them from understanding the truth about Jesus. And what must it have been like for Peter and John? Well, again, when when they're waiting, while the council is meeting, and Peter and John, what was it like for them just waiting for their judgment to be sealed, their fate to be sealed? You see, they knew, there wasn't a shadow on their doubt, that it was Jesus who had healed this man. Not only that, they knew that the Sadducees, that they knew that it was Jesus who healed him as well. How awkward is this moment when both parties know the answer, but one's trying to come up with an excuse to get away from the answer. So listen to how Peter responds in verse 19. I don't want you to miss 
the sarcasm in Peter's voice here. Verse 19, but Peter and John answered him, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And I love verse 21. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them. Why? Don't miss this part. Here's why they couldn't punish them. Because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. What we see here is this miracle, it addressed one of the primary objections that we have always seen in Christianity. And that, that objection is that salvation is only found in the name of Jesus. Friends, this isn't a new controversy. This isn't something that we're just now struggling with in 2018. Uh, understand, the disciples, they're not in trouble because they believe in Jesus. They're not in trouble because they believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They're not being arrested at this time because they believe that there was a man that was dead that came back to life. No, no, no. Why are they in trouble? They're in trouble because they're telling everyone else about it. They're in trouble because they are telling everyone else, there was this guy that was dead and now he's alive and he claimed to be the son of God and he is the son of God. And now they have convinced 8,000 men plus women and children to believe in that name. Not only that, now they're saying, if you disagree with Jesus, if you don't follow Jesus, you are condemned to death to spend an eternity separated from him because there is no other name under heaven given to men by which you must be saved. They weren't in trouble for believing in Jesus. They didn't care what they believed privately. What they cared about is what they were publicly telling everyone else, that Jesus rose from the dead, and you must believe this if you want to be with God for eternity. See, church family, throughout all, all of human history, all, of, all the religions of the world focus on one fundamental question. Here's the one question that every religion is trying to answer. Are there multiple ways to God? Every religion is trying to answer that question. Are there multiple ways that when you die, you can spend eternity with God? Or is there just really one way? And, and how do you know that your way is the one true way? Peter's explanation in, in this passage, it, he, he explains and he deals with two of the biggest objections that people make today about salvation being found only in Jesus. Let me share with you those two objections before we leave this morning. The first objection is that claiming that Jesus is the only way to God is arrogant. How, how can you as a Christian believe that you just all of a sudden, you figured it out and everyone else that there, that is so arrogant that you would believe that. So let's just ask that question. Was Peter claiming that he was smarter than everyone else? No, just the opposite. He said, look, I, he was an uneducated man. He was a common man. Look, look at verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they are these next two words, perceived that they were what? Say it out loud. Uneducated and what? Common. I got to take a time out here for a second. This is kind of funny to me. Who wrote the book of Acts? Luke. Remember what Luke's occupation was? A doctor. So Luke was probably very educated, right? Most doctors have lots of education. So I have to wonder that when Luke's writing this as an educated man, and he's saying, oh, well, my friends, they're not very smart. They don't have a lot of education. Do you think that Peter, and, I mean, do you ever think that Peter and John read this letter? Said, hey, Luke, come here. Did you really have to say that we were uneducated? 
did you really have to put that part that we're just common men? But see, the point here is that Peter says, look, this has nothing to do with education. When it comes to degrees, you got more degrees than me. When it comes to IQs, you've got to be hands down. But listen, he, he, here's this thing. Listen to me. There was this guy. There was this guy, and you killed him because you thought he was a fraud. You put him in a tomb. You put guards there to bury him because you thought that that would end up him. But then he came back from the dead, and he promises that he would come back from the dead. We saw him come back to life. We ate with him. We saw him perform miracles. Oh, by the way, just a few years, just a few days ago, we saw him ascend back into heaven. So listen to me, no offense to your education, but when it comes to believing a bunch of guys with a lot of degrees that are really smart, or a guy that was dead that came back from the, from the dead, I'm going to go with the dead guy that came back to life. So, so go back to this objection here. Is it arrogant to believe that Jesus is the only way for salvation? Is it arrogant to believe that Jesus truly is who he says he is? I think it's the exact opposite. I think it's quite humbling to admit that salvation only comes through trusting in Jesus. Why? Because when you admit that you can't have salvation apart from Jesus, it means that we aren't smart enough, that we're not good enough to achieve it on our own. The only way that we can have acceptance before God is to understand that God came down to us to reveal it to us. Now, some people will say, well, I don't really like Christianity because it's just so exclusive. You get to choose someone who's in and someone who's in. No, Cut that out. Every religion is exclusive. Every religion chooses who's in and who's out. You say, well, I just tend to think in my belief system that if you're good, you'll go to heaven. Only bad people go to hell. God's going to take care of the bad, but just live a good life, and surely that's enough to get you into heaven. So here's the problem with that. What's your definition of bad? Chances are your definition of who's bad is different from my definition of who's bad. Your definition of this is the line that's crossed that you don't deserve to go to heaven is probably different from my line. And it's probably based on your background. It's probably based on your experiences. It's probably based on what your parents taught you. The point is everyone has a list of who should and who shouldn't go to heaven. Everyone thinks that they're tolerant and inclusive, don't they? But those who think they're the most tolerant, those who think they're the most inclusive, let me ask you, are they really that inclusive? The state of California. I would imagine that they would say they are the most inclusive state in all of the nation. We are the most tolerant of anyone. We will, uh, we will accept you for whoever you are, unless you're a conservative Christian, right? Right? You see, see, the point of it here is everyone is exclusive. Everyone has a line that we say, this is who's good, this is who deserves salvation, and this is who doesn't deserve salvation. Don't miss my point here. Christianity is a different type of exclusivity. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is the gospel teaches us that the gospel, that salvation comes to you and to me, not based on anything that we say, anything that we do. It's not based on where you were born. It's not based on your socioeconomic level. It's not based on who you voted for in the last election. Salvation comes as a gift to all who will receive that gift. So hear me on this. You may say, well, Blake, you have no idea the sins I've committed in the past. You have no idea how many times I've turned my back against God. There's no way that God would forgive me, that God would bring salvation to me. 
How do you think that man who was 40 years old that was crippled since birth, he felt? You think he felt defeated as well? There's no way that I can ever be healed. Jesus touched him and he healed him. Or maybe the opposite. Maybe they're opposite and you say, well, you know what? I haven't done anything that bad. You can't tell me that I've done anything that bad that would cause me to spend eternity separated from God. Because if you think I've done something bad, wait till you meet my neighbor. Wait till you meet my in-laws. Wait till you meet, and you can start to name who they are, right? But the truth of the matter is, until you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, until you confess your sins, each and every one of us, we are separated from God. Romans says that we are enemies of God apart from the saving grace of Jesus Christ. That man from um, Acts chapter 3, he was right at the gate. He was as close as he could get, but he was still separated from entering into that temple. By the way, that second person, that person that thinks, oh, well, I haven't done anything that bad that surely God's going to accept me when I die, I think it's harder for that person to experience salvation than the first person. Why? Why? Because that person doesn't understand that until you first understand that there's nothing inside of you, there's no good works, there's no good deeds that will make you acceptable and pleasing before God, there's no way that you can get to the point that you can accept the forgiveness of God. So when you believe that Jesus is the only way for salvation, friends, it doesn't make you arrogant. It doesn't make you proud. In fact, it's just the opposite. When you admit that Jesus is the only way for me to have this peace with God, it should make us as Christians the most loving, gracious, accepting, genuine people on the face of this earth. Here's the bottom line. If there is another way to God, other than trusting in what Jesus did on the cross, if there's any other way, then why in the world would God have sacrificed his son? If you can get to heaven by being a good person, if Muslims and Jews and everyone else, every other religion, they, they can go to heaven too. It's not just Christians. If that's the case, then why didn't God just spare the life of his son? Did he just give Jesus as one of many ways for salvation? I don't think so. Scripture is consistent that Jesus is the only way to heaven. I don't have time to go through all the verses, but I want you to write these verses down. If you ever question or you have someone that says, well, how do you know Jesus is the only way? Well, Scripture says in 1 Timothy 2.5, John 10.9, and Romans 10.13, that salvation comes only through the name of Jesus. Now go back with me and look at verse 11 here. Verse 11 of Acts chapter 4 says, This Jesus, Peter says, is the stone that was rejected by you, as if he's pointing a finger. You rejected Jesus, who is the stone which has now become the cornerstone to us. Jesus has become the cornerstone of God's building. We know the cornerstone, it sets the foundation. That when you set the foundation, you set that cornerstone, the dimensions and the shape of that building are dictated upon making sure that cornerstone is set in the exact correct manner. That cornerstone, it is the most important stone that is laid. Peter says, hey, Jesus, he has become the cornerstone. And because Jesus is the cornerstone of our lives, it reshapes every part of who we are. It reshapes our thinking, our actions, our thoughts, our everything that we do. It's shaped by the fact that Jesus is the cornerstone. Friends, listen to me. Really 
believing the gospel, not just with your head, but with your heart. When you say, I'm going to make Jesus the cornerstone of my life, not stone three, four, five, or six, but the most important stone in my life, it shapes who you are at your core. It's your identity, not just an addition to your life. But when Jesus is your Lord and your Savior, he is at the core of who you are. So when Jesus is your cornerstone, you're not arrogant. How could you be arrogant when you understand there's nothing inside of me that could bring honor to God? Only thing that's good within me is what Jesus Christ has done in my life. It's the Holy Spirit that that does good things through my life. No, God has healed us. We were lame just like that man in the chapter, chapter before. And God came and healed us. God saved us when we were separated from him in our sins. We were dead in our sins and he made us alive. I was blind and he made me see. I was dead and he made me alive. I was guilty under condemnation. He made me innocent. My sins, though they were like scarlet, God has come and he has made them white as snow. I was headed for destruction and God changed my heart and he healed me. When we believe that, it transforms us because the gospel is transformational. The gospel is not just something that's a token that we wear around our neck and says, oh, this is who we are. When we are transformed by the gospel, it transforms us into being gracious, loving, forgiving people because we understand that's what God has done for me. Objection number two. The second objection is that religion... It should just be a matter of personal preference. You know, if your religion works for you, who am I to, to try to mess that up for you? Let's just be peaceful. Let's don't try to mess with some. It's working for them. Let's just let them be. People think of religion sometimes in the way that we like to think of personal preference. If you think that, that Wendy's is better than, than, than Burger King, have it your own way, right? If you think that McDonald's is better than Chick-fil-A, well, you're wrong in the first place. But, you know, I'm just not going to, it's not going to affect me. Just be peaceful and don't worry about it. Here's my question. Should religion fall into the category of personal preference? These personal preferences, you see, they're, they're subjective. What do I mean by that? That means that what's true for me may or may not be true for you. My favorite food, it's true to me, but maybe it's not true for you, so it's not really objective, it's subjective. But is Christianity subjective? Can it be true for some of us, but maybe not true for others? I don't think it was subjective to Peter, was it? Peter looks at this man and says, hey, guys, look, this guy, he was lame. He was crippled. He needed a real power to come and heal him. He needed real strength to come to his legs so that he could walk. They saw something and it was real. And and here's the gospel message that they were teaching. And friends, if you're asleep, wake up right now. If your neighbor's asleep, wake them up. Here's the most important thing that I'm going to share with you all day. Here's the gospel message that Peter was sharing with them and that is still true today. The gospel is that God did for us what we could not do for ourselves. What does that mean? That means that he paid our sin debt. By how? By living the life that we should have lived. By dying the death that we should have died. And when he did that, when we receive salvation, then we are declared righteous, not because of our good works, not because we do good things, but because it was a gift that was imparted to us. Not only did he live the life we should have lived, he died the death that we should have died. He was raised from the dead 
And when he was raised from the dead, that proved that the person of the Holy Spirit lives within us. So now we have the power of new life. What God did for us that we couldn't do for ourselves was by his stripes. We were healed. We are buried with him into baptism and we are raised to walk in newness of life. And Jesus says, though they die, yet shall they live. The most important question that you will ever answer the rest of your life, the most important question that your grandchildren will answer, the most important question that your unbelieving friend will ever answer is this question. Is what Jesus said, is what Jesus did, is it optional to believe? Good for you, not that important to me. Because church family, if what Jesus did was 100% true, if who Jesus says he is is 100% true, religion and following Jesus is not about a personal preference. Let me try to give you an example here. Let's say that you're visiting here for the first time to church and I meet you after the service and then we strike up a friendship and I say, man, I'd love to, to grab lunch with you sometime. Would you give me your number? And you say, okay, here's my number. My number is 256-910-8684. I write it down. Great. I'm going to call you tomorrow. I'm going to call you 256-910-8685. You say, no, 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 that's not my number. I said my number is 256-910-8684. I say, well, I know that's your number. That just doesn't feel right to me. It feels better to me. And what I want it to be is 256-910-8685. So that's the number I'm going to call you tomorrow on. You say, well, you can call that number all you want. But I'm not answering that phone number because you're calling the wrong number. Do you see where I'm going with this? If you and I want to know that, how we can find salvation, it's not how we feel. It's not what we want it to be. We better go to the author of salvation and say, what is it that you dictated? This is the only way that we can salvation, find salvation. Not in what I want it to be, not in how I feel. And the way that he decided that salvation would come is through Jesus Christ alone. I don't know how he can make it any more clear than Acts chapter 4, verse 12. You want to memorize one verse that's going to uh, help someone understand what it means to follow Jesus. It's Acts chapter 4, verse 12. He says, There is salvation in no one else. Plain and simple. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Church family, we need to be saved from our own sin. We need to be saved from our eternal consequences. We don't need self-improvement. We don't need more self-esteem. We don't need more good works. What we need is to be saved from God's judgment. And I know that it's not popular today to talk about God's judgment. It's not popular. It doesn't make you feel good to talk about God's wrath. But whether it makes you feel good or not, it's true that God has a holy and righteous wrath towards sin. That's the God of the Bible, whether we want to say it or not. And salvation is at the heart of what Jesus accomplished for us. He purchased our salvation on the cross by taking our place. And salvation is available to you and me if we do two things. If we respond in faith and if we repent of our sins. Now, two things about Acts chapter 4, verse 12, and then we're done. First thing I want you to remember about this verse it says that salvation is given. Salvation is not something you earn. It's not something that you can do all these good things and finally I'm going to be given salvation. And if it's given by God, 
then God gets to determine how it's given. And who does he give it through? He gives it through the name of Jesus. And that's the second point. There is no other name. There is no other name but the name of Jesus. Salvation is found only in Jesus. So what do we do with this? Great sermon, Pastor. I believe in Jesus. I got salvation. How does this change our life, the story that we read about in Acts chapter 4? My hope and my guess, most in this room, we could amen this. Yeah, I believe that salvation only comes through Jesus. I know that the only reason that when I go before God that I'm going to be able to enter into heaven is because I've trusted in the saving work of Jesus Christ. I understand that. How's our life different? Friends, hear me on this. If reading Acts chapter 4, if it does not burden our hearts to share the gospel with those that we know, those that we see on a regular basis, our family members, our friends, our coworkers, if it doesn't burden us to share the gospel with those who think that the teachings of Jesus are simply optional, I don't know what it's going to take to burden our hearts to share the truth with them. Hudson Taylor was one of the first missionaries to China. Hudson Taylor is famous for this statement that he made one day as he's preaching. He said, Would that God make hell so real to the church that we cannot rest. I pray that's true for our faith family. Let's not reduce our faith to simply something that's a matter of personal preference. Because friends, if what Jesus said is true, that there is salvation in nothing else, not good works, not, not any other person, that choosing anything other than him means that they will spend eternity separated from him in hell. By the way, that's not just the opinion of your pastor. That's from the words of Jesus himself. Again, I know it's not something we like to talk about in church anymore today. But even in a church, we don't like to talk about these realities but I am pleading with us as a church this morning, let's not reduce our church down to just a social club where we come and we get our needs met and we, we say, oh, well, now we feel good and we leave and it doesn't change how we live our lives Monday through Saturday. Would that God make hell so real that we cannot rest? Because church, if what Jesus said is true, if what God said really is true, and we believe it, that salvation is found in no one else and under no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved, then church family, is there anything more worthy of us giving our lives to? Is there anything more worthy of us giving our time to? Is there anything more worthy of us giving our money to support these missionaries? Is there anything more worthy than to say that, God, we're going to lay it all on the line to make sure that we take the name of Jesus, which is the only way that, that we will see that mankind will come to have eternity and spend with you and not spend eternity separated from you. Is there anything more worthy of us giving our lives to than the gospel of Jesus Christ? Let's not get to the end of our life when you and I will stand before our creator and make no point about it, the choir sang about this a minute ago, there will be a day that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, whether you believe it or not. It's in the Bible, so it's true. 
Let's not get to that point where we stand before our creator and we have these regrets that we wasted these opportunities to live for eternity because we got caught up in the temporary. We got caught up in the materialism of today. We got caught up in things that aren't going to make one single dent in eternity. Salvation is in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Would you pray with me? Father, we humbly come before you and we simply say thank you. Thank you for sending Jesus as our redemption to live the life that we couldn't live, to die the death that we should have died so that we might be called a son or a daughter of yours. What incredible gift that you have given us and yet so many times we take it for granted and we pursue meaningless, temporary things over chasing the eternal. Thank you for your salvation. Lord, would you make that the burning cry of our hearts? Lord, today would we repent of the times that we have pursued other things more than we've pursued you? It's so easy to chase the shiny object in front of us. It's so easy to say, oh, just follow your heart. No, our hearts are evil. Let's follow you. Give us a passion for those that don't know you. Give us a desire to live out our lives so that our walk matches our talk. Lord, burden our hearts so that we're even, are we even praying for those that don't have that relationship with you? Lord, we know it's your desire that all men would come to saving faith. Would you burden our hearts, and then as you burden our hearts, as the Holy Spirit opens up those doors, would we be bold in our, our witness, bold in our sharing the name of Jesus? And Lord, if there is someone here today that has not trusted you as Lord and Savior, I pray that today they would respond by repenting of their sin, confessing their sin, and turning that direction, turning away from themselves, and running to you, knowing that they'll find you as that loving Father with open arms waiting to receive them as their Heavenly Father. Thank you for your gift of salvation. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.